Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a semi-constructive activity. This is a meeting of the minds. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Uh, what's happening? Well, I just spent about 20 minutes of my life engaged in a completely needless internal monologue. Uh, I like preemptively condemned myself for not getting obnoxiously drunk at my little sister's wedding, uh, which is coming up. I was, I was sitting here, uh, trying to prepare to do this show. And, uh, I started berating myself for not getting drunk to the point of illness <laughs> at my little sister's wedding, which hasn't even happened yet. Ugh. This is what I'm capable of mentally. This is the level of stupidity that I reach on a regular basis. So, uh, my little sister's getting married, youngest in the family. Presumably, this is the last wedding uh, in the immediate family. We hope it is. It's happening in Chicago. We're all excited about it. And it just so happens to coincide with an extremely busy uh, period of work for me. 
I have some deadlines, some pressures, uh, just a mountain of stuff that needs to get done. Uh, and it has to get done. It cannot be put off. And it's stuff that requires my best brain. But in the middle of it all, I have to travel to Chicago for a long weekend on an airplane uh, with my family, my wife, my kid, and I have to attend my little sister's wedding. And so tonight, uh, I was going over it in my mind, trying to prepare, and I was lost in the future, and I was imagining how things might go. I was anticipating, and eventually, uh, it just spiraled out of control, and uh, I was telling myself, you cannot get hammered at this wedding. The wedding's on a Saturday. We're flying home on a Sunday. Uh, I've got a two-year-old. She's not going to let me sleep in. She doesn't care. I, like, I got to be a dad. I got to hit the ground running, and I have to get back to work. And for some reason, I had, I had it in my head that if I, you know, if I don't get fantastically shit-faced at this wedding, I will somehow be letting my entire family down. Those were the stakes. Like, that's what people are counting on me for. <laughs> and maybe they are, you know. It's not completely off base. You are sort of expected, uh, well, you are expected to be festive at weddings, especially if it's an immediate family member, uh, and especially if you happen to be in my family. My parents both hail from Louisiana. We have southern roots. I have a huge extended family, lots of cousins. And when we all get together, which isn't that often anymore, uh, you know, things can get unruly. But this notion that I'm somehow negligent as a brother and a family member, if I don't get like spectacularly wasted, <laughs> if I don't poison myself with alcohol to the uh, point of uh, complete loss of inhibition and coordination if I don't uh, experience massive uh, dehydration and an utterly miserable hangover, if I don't give myself the equivalent of influenza, then I am somehow failing in my duties as a human being. <laughs> like, that's the job. And, you know, I think it's a somewhat common social pressure. It makes no sense but it's somewhat common. This is what I have to do. I have to go poison myself for my sister. But of course, I don't have to do that. It's completely ridiculous. It's a fiction. You know, just go have fun. Dance a little bit. Arrhythmically. Have a glass of champagne. Maybe make a toast. You don't have to get shit-faced. Like what? Are like people are going to peer pressure me? <laughs> I'm 37 years old, for Christ's sakes. I got to grow up. You know, but it's true. I just spent about 20 minutes of my life uh, in a state of low-level panic uh, thinking about this. You know, how am I going to get around it? Uh, I'll just drink club soda. I'll put a lemon in it so people think it's vodka. I mean, what kind of crazy egomania is that? <laughs> it's going to be like 200 people at this wedding and somehow I'm sitting here thinking that all of them are going to be monitoring my blood alcohol level Jesus I need to relax I need to stay uh, in the moment I need to concentrate on my breathing 
It's going to be okay. I'm going to have a few drinks. I'm going to pace myself. It's going to be fine. Uh, I just can't do the hangover. That's what I'm saying. I can't do it anymore, and especially not when I'm going to be in an airport the next day, which I am. I mean, like, flying sober is miserable. Flying sober with a two-year-old, incredibly miserable. Flying hungover with a two-year-old is a uh, torturous experience that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I've never done it, and I, I hope I don't do it this weekend. But I could. I think that's what I'm afraid of. It could happen. I could get sucked in by the Cajuns, by the Cajun element in my family. And I'll be stuck at O'Hare. I'll be nauseated. I'll be dehydrated. I'll have a splitting headache. And my daughter, my sweet little daughter, (laughs) she'll be sitting there asking me why repeatedly about everything. That's the phase we're in right now. We're in the why phase. So anyway, wish me luck. You know, one step at a time, one day at a time. Uh, I will manage this. I can manage this. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Scott Nadelson. He is the author of four books, three of which are story collections, and now he has published a memoir called The Next Scott Nadelson, A Life in Progress. Uh, All of these books are available from the good people at Hawthorne Books. Great to have Scott on the program. Uh, This memoir is something else. It's very funny very cleverly constructed and painfully honest in the best possible way. So here he is, folks. This is my conversation with Scott Nadelson, the author of The Next, Scott Nadelson. So I am in my uh, office in my house in Salem, Oregon, um, kind of strange capital city that I've uh, affectionately named New Jersey West, um, and, uh, how did you, wind, yeah, how did so you I, wind up there? Well, it's, uh, it's where I work. Uh, my, my wife and I both teach at the little uh, college here in town. And, um, for, for years I had lived in Portland and commuted. It's about an hour away. And, uh, when we decided we were going to have a child, um, realized commuting wasn't going to work. Um, but also realized that at some point, um, that property was unbelievably cheap down here compared to Portland. And, um, we, uh, this was back in 2008, 
uh, right before the market crashed and um, everybody was real estate crazy. Um, and so we we joined in that bandwagon right uh, like two months before Lehman Brothers went under um, <laughs> and bought in down in Salem. Uh, what we thought was a bargain, which ended up being not such a bargain, but um, but it's worked out pretty well for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I didn't realize you were down there. What is Salem like? I've never, I have no vision of it. You know, it's a it's the capital city um, syndrome. So it's it, it's kind of it feels like Portland's poor cousin. I, I like to you know I, I joke with my Portland friends that it's I live in deep South Portland, um, but uh, Portland people never come down here at all. Most people just pass it on the freeway. So it's uh, it's where the government um, is. So there's a lot of government jobs, but it's also where the um, the prison system and mental health establishment are. So it's um, we've got a, you know, a fair number of of down and out and crazy people walking around um, our, our fair streets, and uh, um, it's a it's a pretty working class town. Most of the money in the state has has stayed up in Portland, and um, Salem is is kind of the, the grittier side. Yeah, yeah. Is it? I mean, this. Forgive me for not knowing, but is it coastal? Uh, no, it's um, about an hour from the coast. Oh, it is. So we're we're right right in the heart of the Willamette Valley, which is. Um, and my our, our hope is um, it, we're we're in a major uh, Pinot Noir destination, which is uh, the the valley has been getting is you know becoming the new Sonoma, or, um, Napa, um, not quite on that scale. So one day we're hoping Salem will will. Uh, Receive some of the benefits of that um, good wine. Yeah, just, just buy, time, just, just just buy your time, and eventually that house is going to be worth millions. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, are you from the Pacific Northwest? Is that where you hail from? No, no, I am. I am from New Jersey. Um, oh, okay. So, so that's, you... that's my, my little joke about Salem. Is, you know, it feels like home. Um, yeah. No, I, I came out here in um, been out here for quite a while now. Ninety six. I moved out here for graduate school. And um, just ended up sticking. Um, lived in Portland for about ten years. Was um, sort of bouncing around, teaching part time uh, all around the area, and then and then finally landed this job. Um, I've actually been teaching at I teach at Willamette University here in Salem. I've been teaching there for about nine years, um, but I was part time for a while, and, and uh, I've been a permanent faculty member for, for the last three. It feels like there's a lot of writers and uh, literary type people up in Oregon, and it seems. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so it, I, just about everywhere, uh, yeah. everywhere seems like it might be easier to live than here, except for maybe New York or San Francisco. But is Oregon like a? I mean, is it easy to find a way to live up there? I don't know. Yeah, you know, Portland. Portland has been. I don't. I don't know if it's changed um, since I got there. I, I moved up there in '99, and it was fantastic at the time because I, you know, I was making just no money and, and could go on making no money for, for years and years, um, living pretty well and pretty easily and just working part time and having quite a lot of time for writing. Um, it, it may, you know, may, that may be changing some, um, up there. It's kind of, it's really, the city has been booming since I first moved there. Um, but it's, it is kind of a, a livable place, um, an easy place to be. It's strange. Yeah, I mean, because, like, you know, my uh, roots uh, are in the Midwest, or I guess my, my genealogy is actually traces down into the South, but I grew up in the Midwest, and it's, it's a lot easier. Like, uh, one of my sisters still lives back in Indiana, where it's right. like, just, like, spectacularly easy to buy a house compared to... Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, had 
had those fantasies at, before before I actually had a job about finding one of these little towns in in the Midwest where you could um, you could really just glide for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, I, I like I don't know if you you know you and your wife are the same way, but uh, it's like that that conversation that comes up like several times a year. It seems like and never goes away about like where the perfect place to live would be. Yeah. Yeah, you know, now we finally, I think we finally finished that conversation since now we both have, have tenure track jobs and, and we pinch ourselves every day. She's, she teaches art, so we're two working artists who make a middle class income and it's, we're so bewildered by that, um, that we, uh, I think we finally settled, you know, like this is, this is where we are. Our, our motto for Salem, we, we want to convince the town to, to change the motto. Um, I don't know what they even have a motto, but this would be our motto is, uh, Salem, it'll do. <laughs> uh, and you know what? It, that's, I mean, I think attitude and I think attitude has a, a, a lot uh, to do with how happy you are somewhere and there's never going to be a perfect place. And then um, I also think there's something to be said for just kind of like putting your flag in the ground and saying, this is where we are and this is our hometown. And, you know, I like the idea of that anyways here, like just having a home, I, I like having a home base which i yeah. did, which i didn't necessarily have as a kid cuz we moved around so right yeah I, I think it's it's been an um i've moved so much I, i've lived in oregon all you know for the last 16 years but i don't think i've lived in a single dwelling for more than 2 years um and I, we're just about to hit 2 years in the house we're in right now and um with the idea that we're going to be here for quite a long time and that's that's a really refreshing feeling for me um it must partly come with age and I'm tired of I'm moving around so much, um, but uh, but also to feel like oh, I, I know I know where I'm going to be for a while. That's that's a nice feeling. Yeah, I mean, moving it's exhausting. Yeah. So, and you said you're from Jersey. So you were born and raised, spent your whole childhood there. Spent my whole childhood in yeah, northern New Jersey, about um, basically about 35 minutes west of Manhattan, um, and uh, beat it out of there as soon as I graduated. High school. I, I went to college in North Carolina, University of North Carolina, um, and uh, that was a that was a, a a great kind of culture shock shift out of my um, what I had known into something new, and and spent uh, spent some time in Europe, and then and then came out here. Okay, so let's let's get into that. So, Northern New Jersey. What town are you from? A little town called Denville. Um, nearest bigger town is is Morristown. Um, so you know how New Jersey's it, it's kind of like got the head and the body sort of shape to it, and right in the middle. If if you were going to put an eye in that head, and that's that's about where I was. Okay. And so, uh, what kind of like did you have siblings? Were your parents in the arts? Like, what what kind of childhood did you have? Um, you know, as about the most mundane suburban childhood you can imagine. Really, pretty far from the arts and from anything creative. Um, so I've got one sibling, an older brother, um, and he is now a um, computer systems guy for uh, a hedge fund. Actually, the hedge fund that's been in the news all the time, Sac um, Capital, that the feds have been after. He he does their uh, some of their computer systems. Um, my parents, my my dad was a uh, an organic chemist for a pharmaceutical company, and my mom was a a principal at a Jewish day school. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty mundane suburban existence, um, which you know I, I couldn't wait to get away from, and um, and I actually never intended to write about it, and then it ends up being the, the thing that I write about 
over and over and over again. Yeah, but you know that's pretty common. I think it's like the it's like okay. uh, it's like Joyce writing about Ireland. You know, <laughs> like he was never he wasn't yeah. even there in his adult life, but that's he couldn't couldn't get away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 now it's you know New Jersey and the suburbs have have kind of become less a real place in my mind. It's been so long since I've lived there. Um, now they're it's it's a metaphorical place, a dreamlike place. It's sort of this in between place in the shadow of the great city. People live in these sort of fortress like homes trying to keep their distance from the chaos that they perceive in, in urban life and, and yet the chaos is, is all around them. So I, I've always been interested in that in that kind of divide. This people who have one foot, you know, in life and one foot sort of trying to pull away. Yeah, I mean, see, because I live in the chaos and I have for a while. And uh, I mean, I think, I mean, there's different degrees of chaos, obviously, in Los Angeles. But like where we live in Los Angeles, there's a good bit of chaos, <laughs> Right, right. Um, you know, there's police helicopters flying over our house every day, like multiple times a day. So, um, and I like it, you know, but right. it's, it's interesting, like people who are drawn to this. I mean, I can, I, I can understand the appeal cause I, I grew up in the suburbs, but now that I have a family and stuff, I can understand the appeal of just having like a yard and a house and, sure. you know, to be sure. a little bit removed from it. But I don't know. I think I'm a city person. I think I like, yeah. I don't like being blinded to it. I like being, there's something I get um, that's positive in, in a way from being in contact with that chaos, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's, it's definitely that way. And, and, and we're, you know, you know, we're kind of removed from it now. We live this, it's a city, but it's, it's a pretty small city and our, our street um, is a pretty quiet street and um, certainly not, not a, you know, big urban landscape, but I, I think by the time I was, uh, you know, I was a teenager, I so badly wanted that energy and that grit of, of, a, of a more urban life. Um, I was definitely drawn to it. And I, I, whenever I go into the suburbs, it's like I break out into hives. I think I'm, I'm really allergic to the, <laughs> to the whole place. I start getting really aggressive in the car and <laughs> uh, my wife looks at me funny. Um, and she realized after a few minutes, we, we got to get out of here. Let's get back to town. <laughs> So do you uh do your folks still live back in uh your hometown in Jersey and your brother's obviously uh, in Manhattan or Yeah, my brother's in Connecticut um and uh, my parents are now in in New Jersey South um which is um Florida um so yeah they're in West Palm Beach. Ah okay. So they they they've removed themselves. They did yeah, they they did the they did the migration um and they love it. It's like they're in they're in summer camp all year long. Um they live on a golf course, and neither of them play golf. They play bridge. So they're, they're quite thrilled. <laughs> so okay, so but that that's kind of. I mean, my folks moved away from the places that uh, the place that I grew up. Um, you know, so they now live out in California, and um, you know, I, I go back to the Midwest very rarely. I, I sometimes go back to see my sister, but I don't get to see like the place where I grew up very often. And in fact, I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday about um, the town we lived in in Milwaukee. I haven't been there in twenty years. Right. And, um, you know, so like, would, do you ever like take a trip back if you're in New York and like get on the train and go out to where you used to yeah. live and walk the streets? And <laughs> I, ha- I haven't since my parents left. I think they've been gone about five years now. And yeah, there, there may be a, there may be a moment when I'd like to bring my daughter there and let her see where I grew up. Um, we're, we're going to New York actually next month and, uh, we haven't brought her. She's, I've, she's, uh, two and a half, almost three now. Um, so we're going to bring her to New York and, and that I'm excited about. That feels like, Oh, I'm going to show her where I come from in 
some bigger way um, where it wouldn't, I don't think it would feel that way if I took her to Denville, New Jersey. It would just feel like this is the place where I was stuck for a while. Um, <laughs> so that, that may change at some point. A part of it, I think, is because of the place has become this, you know, metaphorical dream place in, in my mind that uh, there's a part of me that doesn't want to reconnect with the actual um, because, you know, when I sit down to write, I, you know, my, my, my brain goes to that place and I don't know that I want the reality to, to get in the way of, of the dream. Yeah, but it's like, you know, I've been back. I was back last summer uh, in Indiana and I got on a bicycle and like rode around like just like I did when I was a kid, you know, and I rode around my old ho- uh, hometown and just sort of checked everything mm-hmm. out. And yeah. it, it's not the same, you know, like, I mean, it's the old saying that you can't go back home again or whatever. That really is true. Like it felt like I was in a foreign world almost. So what was different? Um, maybe me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like a lot of the, yeah. the, the, I mean, there was also some s- structural differences and, you know, neighborhoods had changed or, you know, some of it too is that neighborhoods look older and trees, right. Like, right. and like, I, you know, trees are bigger. One of the things I remember when I would, uh, and this was again, 20 years ago, I, going back to my little uh, neighborhood in Milwaukee that we lived in, uh, in the suburbs is that when I went back there in my adolescence, uh, having moved away when I was in elementary school, uh, everything was so much smaller. When I was a little kid, right. the street seemed like it was miles long, and the trees seemed right. enormous. You know, like, and then you go yeah, back there, and you're right. like, "My God, this place!" And my house seemed big, and my house was this tiny little thing, you know. And so, it's just like a you know differences of scale. But then I think a lot of it is just you know you're different after all those years away and all the different experiences that you accumulate, and you know. Yeah, of course, right, right, and you and you just carry that childhood perspective with you always, so you're always seeing it through both both lenses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the place is in, in your mind, it's sort of frozen in that time, but of course, like, you know, time marches on. Yeah, absolutely. So were you, I mean, it sounds like you were bored there. Like, were you a happy kid or, you know, like, a... yeah, I don't think I, I, I wouldn't describe it as a, you know, as a happy kid. I think I was, a, I was a fearful kid. Um, and it's funny to think about living in, in this suburban world that is, built because it's so safe and, and you make this world for your kids because it's um, you're protecting them from the, the dangers of the world. And, and the truth was, I was, I think I was just terrified all the time as a kid um, of all the bigger kids and the, um, you know, it was, it, it was suburban, but it was also um, the 70, you know, mid to late seventies and, and early eighties. And, um, you know, school was school was a rough place. I thought uh, it certainly seemed that way to me. Um, so I just, I, you know, I, I, I had this experience of cowering, um, and by the time I got to high school, it was an experience of trying to be invisible, um, trying to not be not be noticed. Um, were you well, like what were you, what were you like? Were you were you? Uh, I mean, it sounds like you were a quiet kid, but did you have friends? I was a quiet kid. I was really small. I was always really a tiny kid. Um, you know, if I had been if I had been any good at sports, that that kind of would erase some of that stuff. But I was never very good at sports. Um, I played. I was I was into it, but I was kind of lousy at everything I did. Um, so uh, that you know, that was sort of this. My, my instinct was to re, to, to retreat. Um, and uh, you know, that, yeah, I think the other thing, maybe this is just American culture generally. There was no if you weren't into sports or you weren't any good at sports, there weren't any really other outlets. School was just a thing you did. Um, Nobody really encouraged you to to seek out things that interested you beyond um, school and and sports teams. 
So, you know, intellectual pursuits, artistic pursuits, any of those things were totally foreign to me, um, really, until until late in my teenage years. Isn't it crazy how Darwinian, uh, like I'm thinking like late elementary school or junior high school, like the pecking yeah. order was sort of sorted out by like who could run the fastest. You know, like it was totally. Just, yeah, totally. It's it crazy. And I think there was, I, mean, I think parenting has probably changed since that time. There's parenting, and my parents were great parents, um, but it was the 70s, right? And p- parents were so much more hands off in terms of letting their kids fend for themselves and figure out, you know, I, I, I was a latchkey kid. I, you know, I'd get off the bus and have a key around my neck starting when I was in first grade and sort of find my own way and, and go you know, play with the neighborhood kids and, and it was like Lord of the Flies, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was brutal. And you, were you piggy? I mean, is that what, the... <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was, I, I wasn't quite piggy. You know, I was, I was smart enough to stay out of the way of, of most danger. Uh, I was more the observer kid. Um, so I don't know, I don't know who that would have been in the book. It's been so long since I read it. No, but um, I'm, I'm thinking now, I think I'm shifting to saving private Ryan. And, uh, is it Henry Thomas, the guy from ET who had the, or no, it was the, it was the guy from Spanking the Monkey, the um, the film by uh, David O. Russell. I'm thinking of the guy right, who's, right. who's carrying the typewriter. <laughs> yeah, that right, was right, that was right. you. That was you in the battle. You know, you were the yeah, one who was sort yeah. of writing it all down, which I guess makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I would, you know, I would try and stay on the side of the the, the people who would, uh, um, you know, who who were strong enough to to survive and and sort of keep behind them. That was my that was my strategy. Well, and, you know, I think back to, like, just to how mean kids can be. And I, you sort of forget, you know, but there were things that, you know, I did with friends of mine where you'd have a buddy and you'd be like, oh, we don't want to hang out with him today. And then, like, I remember one time being at somebody's house and this kid was, like, ringing the doorbell and we're upstairs, like, looking down, laughing, like, not answering, like, just awful shit, you know? Like, um, yeah. it's terrible. Oh, yeah. And I was I would always try to be friends with the the kid who was mean to other kids. <laughs> so, so he wouldn't pick on me because I was the buddy. Um, but I'd watch him torture other kids. Um, <laughs> just that, keep that worked out all right for me a couple of times. So. Well, I mean, uh, I think of it now as a parent because my, I don't know, how old is your daughter? She's, uh, she'll be three in June. Okay. So we're about the same. Like, uh, my daughter's going to be three in August. So, uh, but you know, it's, it's just, just getting to the point, you know, in a year or two where, uh, I think other kids are going to start to be really mean to one another. Uh, right. And so I'm sort of dreading that. I'm sort of dreading, like, what if somebody's mean to her, you know, or these kids start picking on her, or doing nasty yeah. things to her, you know, like, that's another thing that you sort of have to prepare yourself for, and you got to figure out what you're going to say, you know, like, what are you, what yeah. are you going to tell your daughter if some kid, you know, starts doing evil shit to her, are you going to tell her to fight back, or do you tell her to, like, withdraw, you know, it's, it's actually kind of yeah. a, it's kind of a tough question. <laughs> it is, it is, it's come up for us already, and when we, you know, there's some books we'll take out of the library for her, and um, and now I've learned to screen all the books ahead of time and I'll be reading some book and then, and then suddenly, you know, it's about some kid is mean to another kid and I got to try to explain to her. And, um, it's, uh, at this point she doesn't really get it. Although, you know, she's in daycare and, and there, well, there, if, if, you know, it just one kid bites the other, <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the, how it comes out. So it's not psychologically mean yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just like, but, pun- uh, there's like punching and biting and some slapping, yeah, you know. Yeah. Just basics. Yeah, apparently yesterday she was in daycare and she was two kids sitting on the potty next to each other and one just uh, turned to her and 
bitter on the arm. I have no idea why. No, we um, picked. I picked up my daughter the other day, uh, you know, not too long ago, and her teacher's like, "Yeah, you know, she punched somebody today." That's happened twice. <laughs> That's happened twice, and uh, I sit down with her. I'm like, "You can't hit. You know, you can't do that." Yeah. And and she looked at me and she's like, "Daddy, sometimes I just like to hit people." <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most honest answer you could possibly ask for. I'm like, I'm trying not to laugh. You know, she doesn't know what she's doing, but it's like I don't want to share my toy or whatever it is. You know, kids are hilarious. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think mine's. I think mine's gonna be tougher than I was, which you know is. is uh, I'm glad to see she's. She doesn't. She doesn't take crap easily. Well, I mean, and ideally, and here's a, here's an interesting question because you would hope, I think like the optimist in me wants to believe that, um, my generation is smarter than the one that preceded it or that our parents' generation that we had, I don't know, you, you want to be doing better. You, you want to think sure. that your kid is going to learn more and be better off than we are. I hope that's the case, right. you know, like right. Right. hopefully she'll do better and have a better, you know, sense of things and, and just, I don't know. But it could be regressing. Who knows? You know. Yeah. No. I, I I go back and forth. You know. Um. And because I teach, you know, college kids who are a generation behind me, I see how much more involved their parents are in their lives. And sometimes that seems like a great thing, and other times it seems like, oh boy, they they would have been better off learning some of these skills on their own and not relying so much on somebody to always be there. Well, that's the thing is that it's, there's such a thing as like being overly coddled, you know, in these. Parents, like, telling their kids they're the greatest thing ever. Uh, I mean, this has been written about a lot, about, like, the millennial generation. And yeah, for right, anybody who's right. – I'm not trying to bash millennials. I'm just talking about what I've read. But it's, like, a lot of these kids, and I think it's especially um, – you know, I think this is an extension of how difficult things have been economically because the millennials have been coming out of uh, their college experience into an economy that's a complete disaster. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what I think the point is is that the reality – that they are now faced with uh, is completely at odds with what they've been told yeah. their whole, you know, a lot of right. these kids have been told their whole lives. Right. And so, you know, there's something to be Absolutely. said maybe for uh, toughening your kid up. <laughs> yeah. Right. We, yeah. We read, we read some study um, early on and maybe, you know, our daughter was just an infant, um, but it's been really useful. It was describing the difference between kids who've been told that they're smart when they do something well and kids who are told, that they worked hard when they did something well and they could do the same thing. It doesn't matter, you know? Um, but if they, if they're told they're smart then they're much less, um, liable to take risks. Um, if they're told they worked hard to get something done, then and they're much more likely to take risks and take on new things. Um, that, uh, that stuck with me. So that, that's about as far as my, my parenting has gone. <laughs> yeah. I'm resistant to like theory. I, I get, easily rattled or like, it's just, it's like, okay, enough. Like I got to go, I, I want to go with my intuition and yeah, yeah, of course. I don't want to be ignorant either. I just, I think I talked about this recently. It's like it, it, these people who voraciously consume parenting books in an effort to sort of crack the code. I can't do right. that. I can't just speaking yeah. for myself. I can't do that. But like, you know, I, I also don't want to be a fool when I'm presented with good advice. So, what what should I do? Tell my daughter that she worked hard every time something good happens, <laughs> or just if she if she does something well, um, say, good work. That that was good. That was good work to do that, as opposed to um, you're so smart. Um, that kind of thing. I think I've been. Telling I, I think it's the difference between innate. You know, this like you have this innate ability versus um, you have you have done something. Um, that that uh, takes some effort. Okay. Yeah. 
because it's really tempting. Yeah, I don't know. It, no, but it's really tempting to uh, to idealize your kid because you love right. her so much. And like, tell me if this if you guys go through this, but do you ever like sit there with your wife and you're like, she's I think she's really smart. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, every day, yeah. You know, we, so we don't do it to her face, but like to right. everybody else, like our our kid is so smart. Yeah, you know? like, our kid is really she's really advanced. And it's funny. It's funny too to uh, to sometimes fantasize that like, what if she's a prodigy? Like, what if she can like you know? Yeah, right. I would love it if like you know. And I think this is just because I. It's something that I wish I had. But like, imagine if you had a child and the kid really was like a musical prodigy or something and could just like oh, sing yeah. beautifully or just like sit down at a piano and it just made sense or like you know like yeah. that must be. I, I mean, I think fantasy for well, sure. I watched. Uh, I watched. This is going to sound silly, but I watched the Justin Bieber documentary. Uh-huh. On, on Netflix, I'm not ashamed to say that. And <laughs> I, uh, I was just, you know, I don't know, dicking around, and I think we wanted to watch something light. And I'm also fascinated by the cultural, you know, phenomenon or whatever, just to see what sure. it's all about because I'm, I'm sort of out of touch. But I was like watching his mother in this in this movie, and you know, she's probably my age, if not a little younger. I mean, she's a young woman, and she had him when she was really young, and. The kid's like 15 and suddenly he's like an international sensation and she's in these stadiums and there's just that, you know, thousands and thousands of people screaming for him. And they're in like Brazil. Like, what does that do to a parent's head? You know, you must think like I have created something magical. Absolutely. And of course, you know, for the parent, it's this projection because of course you want to be the one on stage with, you know, 15,000 people screaming for you much more, you know, it's you know you're an adult and you and you've sort of worked hard and you have achieved that you have those fantasies about uh, adoration and then um, have a 15 year old kid getting it it's it's got to be kind of kind of twisted right yeah. um, it's really interesting and you know I was um, I was talking about this last night with uh, my wife and a friend of ours about fame. Because, uh, like living in Los Angeles, you just have people, friends of yours work in the movie business and have proximity to this stuff. But, uh, you know, when somebody like Justin Bieber, whoever it is, who's achieved like a high level of superstardom or whatever, it can, it's almost impossible not to be warped by it. And it's like the world just bends to you, you know, like anytime you want something like five people stand up or like, you know, you're worth so much money to these people that like you can show up two hours late and they don't care. Like, what are they going to say? And like... You know, that just eventually, like, you, I think you have to be in having, you have to be a person of enormous character to not become fucked up by that. You know, like, yeah. you can have the best, yeah, of no, it, I, the best of intentions, but eventually, if you live in that world that long and you're that, and you have to be that insulated because of fame, like, it's just toxic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see it even, you know, even with people who achieve some mild success when they're young, you know, friends who are musicians and their, their rock bands did well with, and, we're touring around and it's like immediately um, pulls, brings out your worst instincts. <laughs> yeah. Just to, just to have that, um, I think ego is, is just dangerous that way, um, especially when you're young. Well, it's a good thing writers don't have to worry about being famous, you know? It's one of the things. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we, you know, we can pretty much guarantee our egos are going to be bumped uh, for quite a long time, so. Uh, though I should say, now that you're on this show, I mean, shit is about to change. You, you know, I don't know. Oh yeah, I don't, okay. know, if, yeah, I don't know if you're going to be able to walk the streets of Salem quite the same. Ever again. <laughs> no, I don't. I, you know, I already, I already uh, worry when I walk out my door in the morning. <laughs> so um, let's get back to. I want to. I want to hear about Europe. I mean, you went to Chapel Hill. Oh uh, yeah. You studied uh, what English, creative writing. 
I studied English. Um, I did I did take a bunch of creative writing while I was there, um, but I don't I don't even I don't think they even had a new creative writing minor at the time, so it was all um, sort of uh, elective. Um, but yeah, English literature it was pretty uh, it was pretty traditional literature program at the time. Um, you know, so I studied Shakespeare and Milton and John Donne, and there was no there was almost no literary theory. I don't think I got I got any literary theory while I was an undergrad. Um, so just reading a lot of books. Um, and then, uh, and then when I graduated, I, I got a, uh, at the time, I, I wish my students had this opportunity. It was so great. Uh, there were, there was a work exchange program with the UK. So if you were a college student or a recently graduated college student, you could get a six month work permit to work in the UK. Um, so I, I went over and uh, worked in Edinburgh in Scotland for six months in a hotel bar, um, which, uh, that's uh, you know, Edinburgh has become this other dream place for me. It's sort of my ideal place. Um, that's a good, and, uh, that's so such I, a that's such such a great time to to be alive. Oh uh, yeah, like twenty yeah, twenty two over in Edinburgh and working in a bar. I mean, exactly. come on, <laughs> right? Exactly. You know, it was, it was fantastic. You know, it was it was you know I, I got there in November and left in May or something like that. So I didn't see the sun for for about six months. I was working nights, so I, I would go to work at, at you know, four or five and finish working sometimes it was a uh, it was the catering bar for, so it was big banquets so we would uh we would do banquets for the scottish national rugby team and things like that and and i wouldn't get off work until three or four in the morning most most of the time sleep all day so it was dark and cold i, I was this weird vampire for the year um and it was just fantastic <laughs> it was wonderful <laughs> yeah it really was and uh, made enough money that um, I spent the rest of the year traveling with a friend. Um, mostly, we just he he had he was also on the same exchange program. We met while we were there. Um, he he didn't make very much money. I think he was working in a pizza shop or something like that. I don't know. He spent all his money there, so he didn't have much to travel on. So we just went um, as far east as we could could go without a, a visa and um, lived as cheaply as we could for a while. He was really excited. The further we went east, the cheaper the meat became. So he was just eating this, like you know. And he, and he would only eat from from food carts on the street. Um, oh god! Stuff that sort of looked like bologna, and um, but then uh, it was just you know about ninety percent fat. Um, uh, street meat. It, it was really disgusting. But he he couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. Okay. So how far did you, like, where did you go? Um, we ended up. Um, Slovakia and and Czech Republic and Hungary and Poland. Um, I think that was that, that was our main. We, we we went through a little bit of uh, France and Germany on our way out and Austria, I think. Um, and, have, and then most of the time. Do you have European roots or anything in your genealogy that you were like, you know, was there was that any part of it or no? Um, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I'm my family's all um, Russian Jewish, um, so. It, most of most of my family came from Belarus, uh, which at the time probably still the same. We would have needed a visa to get across, so we didn't go over. Um, but Poland and and, um, and especially Eastern Poland is pretty close to where my grandfather grew up. Um, so there was there was certainly part of that, you know, tracing some, you know, the lost civilization, visiting synagogues and um, a couple of concentration camps, and uh, but probably the the 
the biggest thing for me is my, my pilgrimage was going to uh, to Prague to visit Kafka's grave. That, that was in my mind the whole time. It's like I got I'm going to Prague and I'm going to visit Kafka's grave. Um, that was sort of my um, the, the thing that I knew I needed to do on that trip. I was going to say, so you were you entertained? Like you you knew already that you had literary ambitions, and this trip was infused with um, that kind of uh, you know thinking. Yeah, by that time, you know, I had written. Um, all the way through college, pretty much. I, I didn't really discover writing until uh, maybe my last year of high school. Um, but but by the time I finished college, I was I was pretty into it. I was pretty serious about it. Um, but I had no discipline, so I didn't. I don't think I wrote a word. I mean, you know, I, I kept a journal that year or so away, and uh, I don't think I wrote anything else. But I, it was more finding some kind of literary identity, sort of connecting with with something beyond myself uh, that I had in mind. Um, so, yeah, I saw myself as uh, as a building strong character, um, except that I wasn't actually making anything. As, as a what character? Uh, you know, character in a building strong, you know. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and so and Kafka, and Kafka was a, an author that spoke to you early. Yeah, I discovered him maybe, I think, my sophomore year of college. Um, and, you know, I, and I had a sort of, heard of Kafka. He was sort of a, an idea before I'd read him. But there was something about him that was about strangeness and mystery that um, I think I was hungry for. Um, so yeah, when I when I read Kafka, it, it kind of changed my changed my world. And then so I so I went to Prague and, and um, went to visit his grave. And, and I was I was kind of disappointed actually when I went to his gravesite. I don't know what I was expecting, but it, it's very ordinary. It's it's, um, it's a pretty mundane. Thing that just seemed all wrong to me somehow, um, and then after visiting, I went to the, the Kafka Museum in downtown Prague, and um, walked in the front door, and um, read I guess the first placard there, which had his date of birth and date of death, and discovered that uh, we shared a, shared a birthday, which made me you know happier than oh, yeah. I think anything ever has. Isn't totally it, absurd uh, to be happy about. Um, <laughs> no, I get it. Like, but, uh, you could, especially when you're, an, you know, you're interested in uh, an artistic pursuit, like you can find meaning in those things. It's like, this is it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I need, I think I needed some, something to hang my, uh, my desire on, uh, you know, this, this thing that I didn't know, can I really do this thing? Do I really, is it really me? Um, I, I needed something outside of myself. Um, and, and weirdly that, that was something that, that helped along the way. Okay. So you get, so you, so you were like, you did six months in Edinburgh and then how much, like another six months traveling or something? Yeah. About, about six months or so okay. traveling afterward. Oh God, that sounds great. I wish I could redo that yeah. part of my life and just. I know, I know, <laughs> you know, I don't, I couldn't live it that, you know, quite the way we, we did then. Um, yeah. The hostels was, and uh, the, all the, oh yeah. just, you know sleeping train stations when you couldn't find a place to stay and all that stuff. So, I, rem- I remember there was a hostel in Swi- in Switzerland that I stayed in when I was like, got the year rail pass or whatever. And they right. like, they, they, it was just like this giant bunk bed and you literally slept body to body with people you didn't know. I mean, it was just like yeah. the mo- you know, there's just things you can do when you're 21 that you can't do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still remember the, the smell of, uh, I think it was a hostel at, um, at the base of, of Ben Nevis in, in um, the Highlands in Scotland, which is the, it's the tallest mountain in the UK. That's so a big hiking destination. I still remember uh, just the smell of sweaty socks in that 
room that I stayed in. It like it haunts me to this day. <laughs> oh, God. That's awful. Yeah, and the people who run those things, I mean, you know, that's a lot to take. Constant, yeah. young, constantly dealing with young, drunk college kids, you know. Totally, absolutely. So, okay, so you get back from your travels, and then eventually you, you work your way west. And I'm assuming at this point you're trying to, like, you're flailing about trying to figure out how to be a writer, as most of us Yeah, you know, do. so before, before I left for Europe, partly to please my parents, I, you know, I sent out applications to graduate schools not really knowing what I was doing at all um, or whether it was something I wanted to do. Um, but because, I think because of that, that year away, I hadn't written a word. Um, by the time I came back, I wanted some kind of structure to, to help me decide whether, you know, this is, is this something I can do? Is this something I can find a discipline for? Um, and and it's, it, it was this series of accidents, how I got out here. So um, at the time, I had applied, I think I had applied to the University of Oregon, and, and I, I just wanted to go west. I wanted to go somewhere uh, different than I'd been. And I get a call, or I call home to my to my parents while I was somewhere in Slovakia, I think, and they told me that I, I'd been accepted to Oregon State University. And I said, Oregon State University? Did, did I apply there? Um, <laughs> as it turned out, I hadn't applied there at all. Um, but they, at the time, were trying to do this joint program with University of Oregon, they had fiction writers, University of Oregon had poets, um, and they stole my application and, and, and basically said, come here, we'll, we'll give you um, a teaching thing. And I'd never heard of Corvallis. I didn't know anything about it. And, uh, and I said, yes, sure, I'll do it. Um, so I came home and packed up my car and drove across the country to a place I uh, knew nothing about. Like you literally just showed up and dropped your bag and said, I'm here, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know, the, the first day I got here, it was uh, it was Labor Day, so I couldn't look for apartments. So I drove straight to the coast, pulled up on this um, this cliff overlooking the ocean, and there's a gray whale feeding right off the coast, sort of diving over and over again. I was like, oh, this is this is a good place. <laughs> this will do. And then um, the word Kafka appeared in the sky. Yeah, <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen another whale. Um, since then, it's pretty amazing moment. Wow, um, that's, that's a good sign. Yeah, it was it was a good sign, um, and so yeah, it worked out really well. I, I uh, ended up having great teachers and um, people I'm still really tight with now. Okay, so then uh, the the road to publication, uh, how difficult? How many failures? You know, what did you come up against as you were trying to get yourself into print? Yeah, yeah my, my publication story is, is also you know total accident and luck and being in the right place. Um, so I had written, I had, had written about half this manuscript while I was at Oregon state and, and finished it maybe the year or so after I graduated. So that thing, you know, that, that kind of answered my questions about that. I have the discipline. It really, it really, um, I don't know. It taught me the love of, of the process. So I was pretty, um, pretty into it by the time I finished. And, uh, so I had this manuscript and you know, I tried for maybe a year and a half to, uh, to sell it, I couldn't even um, sell the individual stories. I only had one or two published. So it was um, it was a collection of stories. It was a collection of stories, yeah, uh, connected stories that um, all about um, a single family. Um, so it's sort of the dark version of my family uh, was that, that first book, and uh, so I had it uh, for a while, and, and nothing was happening. And uh, the only the only thing that had happened was that I'd won a, a little fellowship from the local literary organization in Portland, uh, Literary Arts. Um, 
And after I'd won my fellowship, maybe four or five months later, I got a call from Rhonda Hughes, who's the, the publisher of Hawthorne Books. And um, she they were pretty new. This was 2001. They had one season out at that point and were looking for manuscripts. And so she called everybody on the list of fellowship winners and asked if, if uh, we had manuscripts. And um, I sent it to her, and a month later she took it. Um, so... Um, after I don't know how many times had been rejected, at least at least fifteen times by that point, I'd say. Did you have an agent? Um, no, never had an agent. I never, still don't have an agent. Um, and I've been, I've been working with Rhonda since I've been with Hawthorne for four books now. Um, they have they have treated me amazingly well. That's a good thing. That sounds like a sweet deal. Yeah, it's almost like an old school publishing relationship, um, and I think I, I I really credit Hawthorne for. For, for being this way, for taking on writers and really uh, wanting to be there f- for their career and not just for a single book and yeah, it doesn't like, sell well that they disappear. Well, you know, and I think like, I mean, what do I know about the numbers and the dollars and cents of it? But it just seems like such a better way to go. Like if you really do respond to a writer's work, uh, why not go in and say, let's do it. You know, you write, we'll publish. Um, right. You know, assuming that you do the do good work, you know, but I mean, uh, I don't know. I guess for writers, it would sure. just... I know how, how nice it would be to be like, oh, I have a home. You know, I have some place yeah. to go publish my stuff, and it's going to be there. And you know. Yeah. No, it's, it's, been, it's been a blessing. I, I really, it's, it's been a gift for me. Um, and I know so many writers who, it, you know, it's, it's with their publisher, it's, a, it's a, a financial transaction. They think they can make some money on this book, or they think they can make some money on the writer down the road. So they'll take them on, and, and then when they get dropped, it's heartbreaking. So, right. Um, so I, I feel I feel incredibly lucky. You know, the, the biggest fear of as with well, maybe it's the same with any of the big presses now too, is that um, things are going to get so tight that the the publisher can't can't survive. Um, but uh, otherwise, the fact that my books are all in print um, is amazing. And and you've been working, uh, you know, in the short form, so story like short stories. Were in the like for the first three books, correct? Were the yeah all, all three, story the collections. Books all are all story collections, and I say even even the new book, um, you know, it's it's a memoir, and it certainly uh, it has a kind of narrative arc, um, but it's it's made up of, of short form pieces. I, I can't really think of myself as a story writer, essayist. No, it, the short form just makes more sense to me in terms of how to understand my experience. Um, that, that, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, anytime I try to write some long narrative arc, it feels like I'm imposing some kind of structure onto experience as opposed to letting experience find its own structure. Um, and if I'm just honest and let the, the material find its shape, um, my shape tends to be shorter pieces of anywhere between 15 to 40 pages. Well, and that's interesting. Well, because, you know, life is fragmentary. Memory is fragmentary, you know, in terms of the... And certainly the way we consume information is fragmentary. So I I think there's some sense in that, you know, and I think especially when it comes to memoir, you know, the job as it's, I think, kind of broadly understood is that you're supposed to hammer your life story into some sort of narrative structure. And that challenge can, I think, can often cause a person to um, bend the story of their life in ways that, um, I don't know, do it a disservice or... I don't know. Reduce some of the authenticity of of the thing. Do you know what I'm saying? I think so too. I think yeah. I think it's it. You know, to me that the goal of uh, of 
of writing's complexity and, and that sort of imposing a structure on uh, experiences works against complexity. It, it simplifies things into, you know, and, and the, the more popular memoirs always have this sort of structure that you, you know exactly what you're getting is difficult times that lead to redemption. Um, and you have about, you know, three climaxes along the way and it just feels false to me. It just doesn't feel like experience even, even if none of the facts are, are made up. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while, I guess there's, and this, this is the way documentary film feels too. When there's a documentary film of a really, um, high narrative quality, like sometimes in life there are these like grand narratives that happen. Sure. You know, like these, and usually it's surprising, like, especially in documentary, it's like, it's almost like the documentarian goes into it for one reason and then something surprising happens. That's like 10 right. times better, but you know, sometimes, right. those, sometimes those things happen, but, uh, you know, I think that's fairly rare where there's like an actual arc that unfolds naturally in life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I admire novelists who, who are able to create those kind of grand narratives that feel so true and so complex and so real, or even memoirs who, who do, who are able to do it. Um, but it does feel like, um, that's just one way to tell a story and one kind of story that's, that's out there to be told. Um, for me, writing a memoir was, uh, was kind of a hoot because the, the whole idea is, you know, who, who, the, who the hell am I? Why should anybody care about, um, what happened to me? And uh, my life is pretty, is pretty ordinary. So, so playing, playing with that ordinary and having some fun at my own expense, um, that was that was the real pleasure for yeah. me, and short form just makes more sense. It's I think it's a more comedic form, or can be a more comedic form. Um, you know, I, I think think about somebody like Louis C.K. I, I can't imagine a two-hour movie of a Louis show, um, but those twenty-minute segments are are so perfect because the short form just works with his comedy so well. Yeah, that's a brilliant show. I, I love that show. Yeah, he's he's my hero these days. Yeah, I think he's a lot of people's hero these days. Um, so talk a bit about the book so people listening can get a sense of it, like the, the memoir. Sure. So it, uh, uh, as I said, it's, you know, short pieces, um, that are all linked. Um, the book kind of revolves around, um, this big breakup. So I was, um, this is back in 2004. Um, I was about to get married. I was a month away from, from, uh, from my wedding and my fiance fell in love with somebody else. Um, so the a, dra- the a drag king. I got to interrupt drag, you. Yeah, drag king. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to get to that. <laughs> That's what, it's funny because I always, I sort of always hold off with that piece of information. I don't know why. It's, it, 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 this, I, you know, part of the only, the only reason I could write the book is because it's so absurd. Um, and yet, um, it, when I ever I speak it out loud, it just seems like oh, that's that's too ridiculous to even <laughs> say. Um, so, so the book kind of swirls around. Um, the aftermath of that breakup, it, 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 there's one chapter that deals with that part of it pretty directly. And, um, you know, part of the fun for me was, to, and, and I was far enough away from this that I could really see it with, with comic distance, um, thinking about what it means to be with a woman who leaves you for another woman who dresses up as a man and, and, and really a more manly version of a man than I would ever want to be. Um, so... <laughs> So for me, it was a, w- a way to explore masculinity and my relationship to masculinity, my discomfort with masculinity um, a- as a part of this, this larger exploration of, of identity. And that's really what the book is about. Um, it's a slipperiness of identity. Um, it's elusiveness. Also, the way we construct identity. Um, for me, how, I, how I've constructed identity through um, 
through writing and literature largely, also through relationships. Um, so the first piece um, is sort of the aftermath of that breakup and this lonely time that followed, and um, it's kind of a, a riff on Philip Roth. It's, um, so it starts off with a, me doing a reading for when this, this first book came out, um, and uh, this um, middle-aged tippy wearing a yarmulke, uh, sort of um, hippie Jew. That's that's uh, that sort of uh, uh, West Coast thing. Right? I don't think we really had very many of those in New Jersey. He came up to me and and growled at me. Yeah, the next fucking Philip Roth. Um, <laughs> so that kind of became this jumping-off point to to think about the anxiety of influence and what it means to be the next somebody else. And uh, so I, I really just had a good time um, riffing on on Philip Roth, who, who as, I, as I talked about in the piece, um, I can't read because it's just too close. You can't be a... I was going to say... ...you can and, and read Philip Roth without having this sort of shadow over you. Um, so that, and that's, that's kind of where the whole thing started. Okay, okay. So... Um, uh, let's talk about masculinity and your discomfort with sure. masculinity. Cause that is at the heart of it. And I think that's interesting. Cause I feel similarly, you know, like this perception of what it's supposed to look like versus what it actually feels like for you or for me or for whoever might be listening. Like talk right. about your particular perception of it and how it manifested in the book. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think part of it is, is growing up in a place where, um, male aggression is at its highest. You know, I think that's part of me, my discomfort with New Jersey. Um, it's just a really aggressive place. And, uh, you know, I grew up playing little league and, and watching a, you know, an adult coach storm the field to beat up a 13 year old umpire for making a bad call, that, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I think, you know, I think I was, uh, it's, it's partly my nature, partly, um, my, male family models. My, my dad is a, is a pretty quiet, sensitive guy. And, um, and, you know, I think I, I, I always was afraid of that kind of, of aggression, um, and uh, uncomfortable with it. So then you move to the West coast and, um, you know, I'm dating a, a, a woman who's bisexual and has had, um, you know, long history of relationships with women. I sort of thinking of myself as a, I, I can be, this sensitive guy and it, and it's okay. It's not, it's a model that's accepted, except then you take it too far and you don't actually acknowledge, um, your own desire, your own, um, anger, your own aggression. You sort of become this, uh, emasculated figure. That's not really true. And that's really what, uh, what I explore in the, in the piece. Um, but I wasn't really fully in the, in the room with her because I, um, I was trying to be this projection of, um, this, this sensitive guy that I wasn't always, wasn't always actually me. I think that is my, you know, the larger part of my nature. Um, but then there's also the dick part of me and, and, you know, that, that part of me has to be there too. Um, well, I think, let me, I mean, just let me interrupt for a moment because I feel like yeah. there's a, like a high level of value placed on sensitivity in our culture. Uh, and sometimes sensitivity over truth. And uh, I speak about this in relationship to masculinity, you know, because, you know, it's like guys need to be more sensitive and we need to be more, um, you know, emotionally tuned in. I think those things have a lot of uh, credence, you know, obviously. Sure. But I think sure. sometimes, like you say, it can be taken too far. And it's like, you know, we, we got to be men too. And I think women want us to be 
or most women do. You don't want you don't you don't want to be some guy yeah, who's just like overly sensitive and you know right. kind of pathetic. <laughs> right, right, and that's you know that's that's really what what happens is um, you end up suppressing the you know the that male, particularly when it comes to, to to desire and and sort of aggression and assertiveness. Um, you express that too far, and then and then you're absent, and then person you're with, it certainly happened with me, looks for it elsewhere. Um, what's been funny is to, for her to find it in, in another woman instead of <laughs> in a man. In a drag um, in a drag king, no less. In a drag king, yeah, somebody who, you know, and, and what's fascinating about the drag king is, I mean, here's, here's this woman who is adopting, like, the worst in men. She dresses up as this sort of sleazy gangster type um, and, and sort of parodies just the, you know, the the, the, the things that you just don't want to be. Um, so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky, messy thing. And I certainly, I, I think I've, I sort of found my comfort level. Um, I, I'm able to be myself in a way that I don't think I was able to at the time. Um, I can sort of be honest about both sides uh, of myself. And was there like, I mean, obviously that, that experience was, uh, difficult and formative, but like, was there anything that you did aside from survive it that got you to that place? You know, I think, I think surviving it and growing up, um, and probably writing and reading, um, are really, you know, just sort of, and well, you know, and then of course therapy didn't hurt either. Um, I had a, had a really great counselor at the time, um, which I had never been to therapy really before and, and not since. Um, and she was, she was great at, just holding up a mirror and, and making me look at myself and, and asking, usually asking the question, aren't you angry? Uh, and that was the, the thing that I sort of discovered. The thing that I suppressed the most is, is, um, is anger and not, not dealing with the thing that's right in front of you. Um, how are you supposed so, to, uh, how, how did she recommend dealing with anger? Uh, mostly she, she just said, you know, feel it. Don't, don't turn away from it. Um, find a way to express it. Um, Recognize it when it's there, and 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 don't say, no, I shouldn't feel anger. No, I'm not supposed to feel anger. I'm supposed to be the sensitive guy. Um, right. I think that was that was the biggest thing. Well, that's and you know, and then I took it too far, and I I kicked the hole in the door, and then she told me afterward, and like you know, screaming would have been just fine. Um, <laughs> well, but I find like I've like lately, uh, you know, like just like we, you know, just whatever daily temper flashes that a person has, you know, they can come up for whatever reason, like. You're mm-hmm. ru- you're rushed or you're uh, anxious or you're you know, overtired or whatever it is. I find that uh, if you just say to yourself, "I'm feeling angry right now," like you right. actually take right. a moment to—I mean, it sounds silly—but if you take a moment to acknowledge that's how you're feeling and you you notice it, that right. does a lot to diffuse it. You know? I don't yeah, know. absolutely. Just, yeah, and my, my instinct my instinct is always to push it away. Like, no, I shouldn't be feeling this, right. um, and uh, and get rid of it. I, I think you know. My, and I'm sure it comes from childhood stuff, you know, watching my, my brother and my mother, they were sort of hotheads and, and they could be pretty angry at each other, um, which always you know, was something I just wanted to get away from. So I think my instinct is, is no, shut it down, shut it down. Um, but that's uh, it's always pretty unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. And then like before I let you go, I want to talk about something you, you mentioned briefly earlier because I think it's fascinating and that is the – um, culture of aggression that exists among 
uh, the people of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, uh, and especially right. like in masculine culture, because you know it's sort of like a, it gets caricatured in our culture, you know, because sure. it's, it's like a thing people know. But I've never actually talked about why it's there or thought about, you know, really deeply why it's there. Like, do you have a sense of why there's that, like, New Jersey thing? And it's kind of in Philly, too. And I guess it's in New York. I mean, it's like that part of the the country is sort of known for that. But Jersey has this sort of special brand. And uh, do you have a sense of it, having grown up there, why it's that way? That's a a really good question. I I think it's it's American culture generally. And, like, you can't watch a TV show without seeing male maleness presented in this sort of dominant, dominating, aggressive way. Um, but well, why there? You know, part of it is probably how many people are there. And so, you know, this sort of packed-in population, um, part of it is probably where people came from. It's it, where I grew up was about 90% Italian and Irish Catholic. Um, so I think they're probably carrying, there's a lot of us carrying from a, from their cultures, um, but beyond that, it's it's a really good question. I don't I don't I don't know why why there. It's maybe it's because it's the the birthplace of the you know of the of the crowded freeway and the turnpike and the and the and the mall. And those maybe those two things are the are the you know centerpieces of anger. <laughs> if you're in a mall, you're gonna be pissed off. If you're on a turnpike in traffic, you're gonna be pissed off, and <laughs> and uh, those things bleed out. Well, and what about like, an, is there any kind of inferiority complex relative to Manhattan? You know, like it's like being the, and just being kind of like the small state. Yeah, maybe, maybe so those chip, chip on the shoulder kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah, that, I think that might be, might be part of it too. Well, and it's like, you know, there's also just the, um, the, the imitation factor, like these things perpetuate themselves. So like, you know, right. if there's enough people who are acting pissed off and aggressive, um, you know, that is contagious and, yeah, you know, right. and, and like, I guess the good, the, the, the good side of it is that the reverse is probably true too. So if you're living in a place where people are, you know, being, uh, what more sedate and peaceful then that's, sure. that's probably right. contagious as well. So I guess maybe the lesson is yeah. to try to be what you want to see, not to sound too right. bumper sticker ish, you know, but yeah, no, it's, you know, I think it's true. You get rewarded for the, for the, certain behavior and then it perpetuates so i think that's you know new jersey the at least growing up there the, the people who seem to, to do well in the world were those ones who were you know shit kickers and and um then you come to a place like portland and you're rewarded for being an easygoing person so i think that's that's probably a big part of it well, no, it's, it's so funny that you say that because I went to a college in Boulder, which is, you know, Portland and Boulder have some similar DNA. For sure. And uh, I remember like what a high and, – and it was there was also something passive aggressive about it or there was something off about it now that I look back on it. And, and even when I was going through it, I was sort of like, what does this mean? But I just remember how much of a value was placed on being uh, quote-unquote mellow. And I remember that word right. being tossed around in college like so much like – yeah, man, he's so mellow. Like he's the coolest guy. Yeah. He's so mellow. And I was sort of like not mellow internally, and I was like, "Damn it, I'm not mellow." Like, how do I, <laughs> right. how do I get mellow? <laughs> right. No, I think I think that was it for me too in in college, sort of finding a finding a group of people for for whom that was a this is a positive thing. I'm like, oh yeah, we can just kick back and sit here and watch things for a while. That's what a great thing to do. Right. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating, and I don't know. I'm trying my best to uh, 
you know, I think there is something good about being mellow, you know, but I don't think it means necessarily that you should be passive, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sort of living in Oregon for all these years, but mostly I'm so relieved to be in a place where everybody is nice to each other and, and, you know, not overly reckless on the freeway. But then there are times when it, boy, it just gets my, <laughs> me boiling. I'm standing in the grocery line and people are chatting with the cashier forever and <laughs> so like, come on you people um in my, with, my jersey it, out, so. yeah yeah enough with this human kindness i've got to pl- i got somewhere to yeah. be yeah uh, stop smiling just <laughs> push the stuff along well but you know and like you know speaking of passive aggression uh there is like you know there's that passive aggressive like hyper niceness where yeah. you know people are holding eye contact in a really uncomfortable way and smiling with right. all this anger inside of it it gets to it gets back to the repression of anger where you know, right. sometimes it's it's okay to just like, you know, you don't necessarily have to like kick something, but just let it be a shit moment and try to breathe right. through it. You know, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, right. so what's next for you? You got another book uh, in the works? Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm working my way through this manuscript. Um, that's I think getting kind of close. Um, it's uh, I'm calling it a novel. Uh, it sort of works similarly. Um, novel built of smaller narrative arcs um so yeah i'm back to new jersey um to a character without my name and and uh, a little bit a little bit dis- distant from me but um um yeah i'm thinking about it i'm calling it a chronicle of a nebbish nobody um but looking at this this character over about 20 years time um a little man in a big world wow. and then you, you say it's almost done that's uh, getting close. I, I think uh, I'm getting I'm getting sick of it. So uh, that must mean I need to, uh, <laughs> to wrap it up and put it on a shelf for a while, or or uh, or see see if it's finished. Send it to Rhonda. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, uh, best of luck with it, and uh, you know, best of luck with the memoir. And I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. This has been fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, there you go. That's Scott Nadelson. Go get his memoir. It is called The Next Scott Nadelson, A Life in Progress. It's available now from Hawthorne Books. You can find Scott online at scottnadelson.com. He's on the Twitter, at Scott Nadelson, and he can also be found on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Get the app. I always say that. You know what I'm talking about at this point, right? Get the free app, the official Other People app. It's free. It's free. How many times should I say that it's free? It's very easy, too, and it's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, You can also subscribe to the program for free at iTunes, and better yet, you can rate and review the show at iTunes, which I hope you will do if you enjoy the show and have positive feelings about it. Be sure to check out the nervousbreakdown.com, my online culture magazine slash literary community. Uh, what else can I plug? Uh, I'm not going to get drunk at my sister's wedding. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give myself the flu. I'm not going to succumb to the pressure, the needless, self-created internal pressure that I seem to be putting on myself. This pressure that I feel for some reason to decimate my internal organs and poison myself to the point of Cro-Magnon stupidity, uh, all in the name of some kind of Dionysian family tradition that may or may not even exist. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I might do it. Please remember that Django Reinhardt died of a cerebral hemorrhage while fishing in the Seine, and that William Faulkner once referred to Henry James as, quote, the nicest old lady I ever met.
end quote. That is it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Scott Nadelson. I'll be back again in just a few days on Sunday with another writer, another conversation, another uh, rambling, self-obsessed, and needlessly wordy monologue involving subject matter of a largely inconsequential nature. Uh, yeah, I have to wear a tuxedo this weekend. So you can imagine me in a tuxedo. You can imagine me sober in a tuxedo. You can imagine me uh, wasted in a tuxedo doing the second line on a parquet floor with my 70-year-old aunts and uncles. You guys know what the second line is? If not, uh, just look it up on YouTube. It's a Louisiana thing. You know, we do it at every wedding in my family. Uh, imagine me drunk and trying to do the splits on a parquet floor while the wedding band plays Mustang Sally. Why do wedding bands always play Mustang Sally? Why do I care? Why am I overthinking this? Why can't anything just be easy? (laughs) 